0: Hey, Leif here. I wanted to take a minute before we start today's episode to let you know that the WJFF Spring Fund Drive is happening right now, and we need your support to keep us on the air. You know, WJFF has been on the air literally nonstop for 31 years, and throughout that entire time, almost a third of a century if you can believe it, we haven't played a single ad. And I think that's something that all of us—volunteers, staff, and community members alike—take a lot of pride in. We like to say that we are a community radio station, but what exactly does that mean? It means that we are of the community, by the community, and for the community. And I know that sounds cheesy, but it's so true. WJFF is this beautiful amalgamation of voices and ideas that represent the diversity of our upstate New York and northeastern Pennsylvania regions that we call home. So much of the programming that you hear on this station is from your neighbors. Not only do we have local news programming like Local Edition or Radio Chatskill or this close-to-home podcast for that matter, but we also have this incredible eclectic collection of music programming from local hosts. If you haven't committed the entire weekly programming schedule to memory— Let me just give you a quick rundown of the music genres I happened to tune into in just the last week alone on WJFF during music shows hosted by folks right here in our community. So I heard hip-hop, folk, punk rock, bluegrass, jazz, latin pop, funk, soul, classical, R&B, house, and indie. And that was just when I happened to turn on the radio in the last seven days alone. So yeah, When we say we're a community radio station, that's what we mean. And I'd like to say that we are totally independent, but we're not. We rely on you, your input, your listenership, and your support. And look, keeping WJFF on the air isn't cheap, but it's so important because it connects us. And as I've seen in just these first episodes of Close to Home, when we come together and listen to each other, we can accomplish incredible things. So let's keep coming together through local public radio. Pitch in whatever you can at wjffradio.org. Again, that's wjffradio.org. Okay, let's get this show on the road. From WJFF Radio Catskill, this is Close to Home, the podcast that explores the people, issues, and institutions in the Catskill Mountains, the heart of small town America. I'm your host, Leif Johansson. Hey again, this week's episode is an introduction to a series that we're going to keep coming back to. The topic is waste, specifically our garbage and recycling. And I know it's not the most glamorous of policy issues, and realistically, it's not even that unique to our area. But I have a feeling that because it's neither wildly intriguing nor unique at first glance, not much has been done about it for decades. Doesn't it strike you as a little odd that in the age of supercomputers, helicopter drones on Mars, and two-day delivery of virtually anything you'd ever want, we still just take the vast majority of our solid waste and put it in a pile. And that's it. I mean, there's no other processing or decomposition process beyond that. It just goes into a pile. And when that pile gets too big, we put a tarp over it and we call it a day. And yes, there have been some recent marginal improvements to our trash pile making. Since the latter half of the 20th century, there have been federal laws on the books, such as the 1976 Resource Conservation and Recovery Act, that have mandated that landfills have heavy-duty linings underneath them so that chemicals from the compressed trash don't just leach into our soil and our groundwater. But there is still a surprising lack of system overhaul here. It's still just a pile. A lot of our stuff can be recycled, but as we'll hear today, probably not as much as you think, and for things that can be recycled, well, we don't always do a great job of doing it properly. For a bit of local background on this issue, our garbage and recycling here in Sullivan County is collected either by private contractors that pick it up from our individual homes or you can elect to bring it to one of six transfer stations across the county. All of it, at the end of the day, ends up at the county transfer station and materials recovery facility in Monticello. That's where the Sullivan County Landfill is, which reached its maximum capacity more than a decade ago. So if you drive past it now, as Broadway turns into old Route 17 heading out of Monticello, it looks like a small and somewhat unnatural mountain. So what happens to our garbage now?
1: Much of what we produce is shipped long distances for final disposal. Uh, and that, takes, that creates, of course, an impact uh, on, on greenhouse gas emissions, fuel consumption, wear and tear on roadways, uh, wear and tear on heavy equipment, and certainly the, the noise impacts of moving that material through communities as well.
0: That's Bill Cutler, the Sullivan County Recycling Coordinator. He's been talking trash, as it were,
1: for a long time. Uh, began this career in 1990, uh, of all things, and I've been with the county since then. Um, basically, recycling coordinators are tasked with everything from marketing recyclables to educational programs. Communications are key uh, even to things that, that don't seem to make a lot of connection necessarily to recycling and materials management, making sure our computer systems are are talking together and uh, information flows. So it's a bunch of things, uh, including report writing, grant writing, and, uh, and good stuff like that.
0: I'm curious what some of the biggest changes are you've seen in our recycling and waste uh, system in the county since 1990 when you started working on this?
1: There's really been several changes, uh, both in the industry and in in local disposal options as well. Uh, Landfill capacity has remained, believe it or not, fairly constant, but the accessibility of that capacity has moved farther and farther away from the points of generation, especially in New York State. Uh, once upon a time, every small community had its own, what we called in the back in the old days, dumps, which were essentially unregulated, unmanaged piles of, of waste uh, that were pretty much left uh, in exposure to the environment. Since the 1980s, uh, New York State enacted very stringent landfill regulations uh, called Part 360 regulations and federal guidelines uh, as well kicked in about the same time. Those are called Subtitle D requirements. And that pretty much set the ground rules for how landfills in the future would operate. Uh, It both increases costs and complexities on communities to operate those safe and sanitary facilities, but it does also ensure that those facilities will be well-managed and will not be prone to leaks. And if they do leak, there's means of stopping those leaks and remediating any damage or harm to the environment that's done. Likewise, in recycling worlds, the uh, lack and distance of market access uh, for ways of of managing recyclables have changed as well. Uh, Many products that we consume here in North America, for instance, are made overseas. And to truly be recyclable or be recycled, those waste components that when we're done with an item or a good, uh, that material has to go back to the point of creation where that original material or thing was made to be recycled and that's been a big change because we at one point used to make our own say glass bottles fairly locally of uh, a closest glass plant here in, in sullivan or near sullivan county was down near maybrook new york in orange county and those smaller glass plants and scrap metal facilities etc have largely been consolidated and it means that those raw materials have to be shipped much greater distances to be marketed and then recovered if you don't have a market you can't really recycle something. Uh, that's been a, a very big change we've seen as well. So uh, essentially, recycling programs have have kind of matured to the point where they become collection points, consolidation points for spent recyclables. And programs like ours then work with the private sector to find ways to ship those back, get them back to a company that specializes and turning that uh, that now glass broken glass cullet in many cases back into new glass bottles that consumers can use again. Uh, once upon a time, the idea of a glass bottle as a reusable instrument was a, a much easier and straightforward and more energy-efficient container. Uh, when I was a kid, talking many, many generations ago here it seems, uh, glass bottles were reusable rather than recyclable. They could be refilled, sterilized, cleaned. And, um, you know, a new cap or container uh, label put on and shipped back to a consumer. Uh, milk was often transacted that way. Uh, soda pop and other materials as well were done that way. So do well. we just
0: move away from that model where something like a glass bottle will get reused over and over and over again just with after being cleaned out and throwing a new cap on it? Um, mm-hmm. Just because it's, it's so much cheaper now just to create endlessly new glass bottles?
1: That's a very good question. It comes down not only to a matter of cost, but of convenience. Mm -hmm. Uh, Over the years, we've become very accustomed to having things very convenient and at our fingertips. And I think perhaps markets were looking at a quick way of packaging something and then not needing to have to necessarily deal with the container once the contents were purchased by the consumer and utilized it became a single use or an end use for that package so the consumer would buy the product consume the contents and then the consumer would then manage the end use or the end disposal site for that spent container if the consumer had to rinse the container out and then find a way to get it back to let's say a a milk plant or something of that sort for refilling I think there was a, a at least an, an implication that that was less convenient than simply discarding the spent container and then purchasing a new one. Uh, so it's been a very subtle change that I've seen. Uh, subtle steps for slight convenience increase or in, uh, increase in convenience, yet a much greater waste product resulting from that.
0: So I'm getting into the topic of how our recycling system on the county level works, it seems like a system like single stream recycling is kind of based around that same idea of how can we make this as convenient as possible to the consumer who is creating this waste once they're done with these, uh, you know, often kind of single use items. So how does that single stream system work?
1: So many counties like Sullivan have fairly, uh, complex arrangements for collecting and then consolidating materials and finding them or finding a way to get them back to a, a place that would take them. In Sullivan County's case, uh, we're our county spread out of over about a thousand square miles. And Sullivan County operates a hub and spokes solid waste management program consisting of a central uh, facility in Monticello, New York, that has three closed capped landfills on site. A stormwater treatment plant, a leachate collection and treatment facility, a gas management facility, as well as an export facility and a paper recycling center designed specifically to accept both waste and single stream recyclables back into the export capacity of the building and sorted paper types, cardboard, newsprint, mixed paper in our paper recycling facility. So that sounds like a lot, right? Uh, It essentially means that garbage goes to one place. In a building where it's then transferred to tractor trailers and shipped up to seneca meadows landfill in upstate new york for disposal and on the other half of the building single stream recyclables are collected and again that's kind of a tip and ship operation single stream recyclables are collected by our private hauling community in sullivan county uh, who offer the curbside collection convenient uh, pickup of single stream recyclables and waste from customers as well as those six county transfer stations that are arrayed around the county. And uh, we provide the trucking and transfer for materials from all of our county facilities, plus two town stations as well. So the amount of travel that materials undergo to get to the point or from the point of of disposal to our point of recollection and then marketing is, is pretty extensive. The single stream recyclables in our program once brought to our central facility in monticello are transferred to beacon new york uh, to a republic waste single stream MRF or materials recovery facility that facility is unique because it goes beyond just accepting source separated or consumer separated recyclables for recovery uh, it specializes in taking apart a whole mix of all types of containers and packages Uh, through a semi-automated system, developing separate piles of each of the valuable subcomponents in that single-stream recycling uh, mix, if you will, and then finding markets globally for those materials. So it is very complex, and there are many market dynamics that affect supply and demand, obviously, and value of those materials in the single-stream program. To have a really well-administered single-stream program, you kind of have to set some basic ground rules at the start, Uh, which means maybe the recipe of what you will accept as single stream recyclables coming in from the public. And in our case, it's number one through number seven plastic bottles and containers. Uh, They do have to be five gallons in size or smaller, completely clean. They do have to be empty, no liquids trapped inside. Caps should be removed. Caps, if they're not metal, should be disposed of. Uh, If there's any residue or contents, that container, if it can't be cleaned, should be thrown away as garbage rather than be recycled. Likewise, in single stream, glass bottles are accepted as well. They need to be empty empty and clean. Labels can remain on. Metal containers, both aluminum cans and steel cans, clean and empty, uh, are accepted in single stream. And single stream goes a step further. It also accepts things like corrugated cardboard, mixed office paper, uh, magazines, junk mail, telephone directories are accepted, and newsprint. And that's a very, if you think about it from a a convenience standpoint, it's a very convenient mix of just throwing everything in a pile as long as it's clean, well-designated single stream material And that material then gets transferred to a facility that can then resort out all those components that make up the single stream mix or recipe and market those materials. So it takes a lot of the legwork of hauling just a container of cardboard or just a container of number one plastic or just a container of clear glass out of the municipal realm that we once did, and it transfers it back to the private sector they've got the specialization and tools and facilities necessary to divvy up those subcomponents in the single stream mix and then market them. And once they're marketed, the industries can transfer those back to the points of manufacture where they need to go to be turned into new things. So if my
0: understanding is correct, then you're saying that the only difference between single stream recycling and multi-stream recycling is that rather than us sorting our own Recycling much of the time, unless we're sorting it out at a transfer station, someone else is doing the sorting at one point or another. It, it it's just changing the point where the sorting happens, right? Yes, exactly. And that sorting doesn't happen at the facility in Monticello.
1: That all that sorting just happens in Beacon. It does. It does. Our single stream facility here in Monticello is really just a tip and ship operation. It's the consolidation point. Got it. Uh, we no longer have the staff necessary to process those sorted recyclables into different categories. And instead it's commingled in a box and transferred to a company that can do it. And that company will then depending on the economics of the material in that box, if recyclables are up in value as they're starting to become now, uh, we will see either lower costs to discharge those recyclables to the company, or we may even see a positive revenue stream in the future as recycling markets rebound and material markets increase in value. So it's it's a sliding scale. Uh, if things are costly, we're going to have to pay to have our single stream processed, and if economics are good, if the value of those recyclables in the box are high, we're going to see. a a check or a revenue stream from those materials that we do recycle. Uh, It's really kind of unique because in government, we're the only program I'm aware of that actually buys and sells commodities into the global recovery market. So we make a product and and we sell it worldwide.
0: Hmm. And so that revenue that comes back from these items being recycled, does that go to, in our case, the Sullivan County government?
1: It does. Uh, It's deposited back in the county's general fund.
0: That's interesting what you were saying about the price of recycling. Sounds like it's on an upswing right now. Do you know why that is? I know I heard you speak a couple of years ago and I, I remember you saying that there was really not much money at all in a lot of the different materials that are being recycled. So what's changed?
1: Well, a few things are changing. I think that is the key word. In global recycling markets, change is actually the, the rule of the day, right? So things are always in flux. But what happened several years ago is a great quantity of North American recyclables were shipped to China and other Far East nations for processing and recovery. And a lot of the materials that were being shipped overseas was not of a high enough marketable quality for those countries to benefit from and turn back into new materials. In other words, a lot of those countries were faced with landfilling, a lot of the less than desirable contaminants that we shipped back to them in the form of recyclables. And consequently, they enacted legislation, uh, in China's case, it was known as the National Sword. Uh, which essentially blocked uh, import of recyclable materials to China from North America and other countries. And that really put a tremendous uh, uh, roadblock in the way of, of programs like ours trying to market recyclables. If your key market, the only big key market in the world stops accepting your materials, you quickly have to find alternatives. And as you can imagine, a sudden glut of material were available worldwide, and that glut caused a massive price collapse globally. Um, you know, valuable or materials that were once valuable uh, became ubiquitous, and, uh, you know, the, the value of those materials dropped to the point where it cost sometimes great amounts of money just to have them shipped to be recycled or covered to someplace, and we had to quickly figure out where those new markets were going to be located. Uh, we're starting to see some improvements now. Uh, there's been reinvestment in North American mills in some cases, and a, a, a redirected look at kind of having a little of our own sustainable uh, stewardship, if you will, on products that are created here in North America to make sure that they're recovered here as well. In New York State, several new paper mills, for instance, have either reopened or about to reopen. That creates a drive for more raw material, which then uh, causes the price to go up a little bit. so, There's always been fluctuation. There's an up and a down, you know, natural uh, pendulum swing, if you will, with commodity markets globally. And we're starting to see, we think we've started to see the the worst case scenario of the, the price dip, if you will, with materials. And now we're starting to see a little more demand and we're starting to see those prices increase and improve a little bit. We're seeing it also in things like scrap metals. Uh, There's been, you know, certainly some some newsworthy headlines recently about infrastructure improvements uh, in North America. That means places that that make steel are going to be looking for local sources of raw material, i.e. recyclable steel and iron ore, things of that sort, uh, that can be turned back into new marketable products for building materials. So we see an increase in demand there, which is causing the price to go up a little bit. Those are all really positive trends. Um, I would love to be able to say that things like old-fashioned cathode ray tube television sets uh, are, are seeing increase in value. They're not. Uh, they contain lots of toxins, and fortunately, they're a legacy component that we're not going to have to deal with, hopefully, in the future. But other recyclables are going to have to have some recovery strategy put in their place as well.
0: So it sounds like these East Asian countries that essentially refused to take any more of our mediocre quality recycling materials that actually needed to be, to be thrown out from the US. It sounds like it's really on us that we are giving them really mediocre quality materials. Is that just because we keep trying to recycle items that, like you said, are contaminated or not washed out properly? Where is the issue stemming from?
1: The issue, the solution, I think, to the issue is complicated. And yes, I think when you encourage people to kind of mix a lot of dissimilar products together, there's uh, a tendency to see the quality of those mixed materials decline. Mm -hmm. Uh, Cleanliness is perhaps not uh, number one on the attention sort, as it should be. Uh, Making sure the the right materials only are in that box. Um, We see lots of confusion uh, with consumers. With definitions of products, for instance, what is glass? You know, well, our terms specify glass containers, uh, which should contain a beverage or a solid of some sort, a food sort. But we see people frequently bring in things like mirrors and uh, pirates' dishware, plates, uh, the the tray that would be in a microwave oven. Uh, People think it's glass because it looks clear and it has that glass-like characteristic to it, when in fact it's a pyroceramic, which is nothing like glass. Uh, It has a completely different chemistry, but consumers really don't know the difference. It looks like glass, therefore it's glass, therefore I'm going to put it in the recycling bin that takes glass. And that becomes a very big, expensive contaminant to remove because when it breaks, each time it breaks, the smaller and smaller pieces contaminate a greater and greater volume of perfectly good recyclables. So we've really got lots of challenges with education and consumer awareness and product manufacture. And and, um, I think uh, intended use and intended recovery needs to be something that manufacturers put a little more emphasis on as well.
0: And on the plastics end of things, is my understanding correct that something like a number seven uh, plastic where it has the recycle symbol and the number seven in the middle can't really actually be recycled?
1: Again, that really depends on the recovery market and the specializations involved in marketing those materials mm-hmm. In some cases, there are markets for number seven plastics, but they're typically a very small fraction of the plastic recovery markets for, say, plastics number one and number two, which enjoy really good, strong, you know, long-term recovery and recycling characteristics and operations. Plastics like number seven, remember the, the API, the plastics numbering code that was developed over 40 years ago, really only has a number one through number seven. To you and I, when we see a one through seven, it seems like a very straightforward process. Oh, if it's got a number on it, it goes in the bin. But chemically, there's a whole lot of difference in those different chemistries. For instance, if you look at a number two plastic, which we think of as a high-density polyethylene plastic bottle or jug, think of a five-gallon bucket, that may be the chemistry of a number two HDPE plastic or a plastic milk jug or a plastic laundry detergent container that's dyed blue or orange. Each of those color characteristics, the chemistries uh, or stereochemistries of those number two plastics will affect their value, their recoverability, and their marketability as a new product. If we packaged only number two natural, uncolored, pure resin, Uh, If we patch everything just in that one type of plastic, you could then truly call it a number two plastic. But if you've seen plastic bags, oftentimes they'll have the number two recycling triangle on them because, yeah, those plastic bags in some cases are made from HDPE. They have a totally different physical and chemical property and characteristic than a, a rigid number two milk jug. And consequently, when you try to collect the plastic bag with other mixed containers the plastic bag becomes a a tangler, if you will, in mechanized equipment, and it will cause a recycling center to shut down. It'll actually jam it up. Uh So while you're trying to process all of the number two and turn it into a usable commodity, now you've got a physical obstruction tying up your recycling program. Uh, Your equipment might be damaged. You have to tear stuff apart to fix it to get that stuff out of there and that downtime adds cost and complexity and it really hurts your bottom line.
0: Love to pivot over to as i've been very excited to say trash talk <laughs> uh, you mentioned before that the garbage from sullivan county now the sullivan county landfill as i understand is full and, and covered and we're just monitoring that our garbage is now going up to you said um is it near syracuse is that right yeah yes seneca meadows landfill so i suspect that's tractor trailer upon tractor trailer on a daily basis um, to just take our pile of stuff and put it in a different pile of stuff elsewhere. Have there been uh, either conversations or do you have thoughts on how we can do better with this? I know I've read about waste energy programs where waste is turned into electricity in a, in a facility, um, and I'm sure that there's, there's other kind of creative solutions that you've, um, you have some knowledge about as well. Um, is there any chance that we will be seeing developments on this in the future?
1: Absolutely. Uh, some, As I call it, some undiscovered country here in Sullivan County component of our waste stream that we're not really looking at or haven't historically looked at, we are looking at now, are the organic component of what we throw away. Hmm. So just to give a little bigger perspective, uh, Sullivan County generates somewhere around 72 to 75,000 tons of garbage per year. We have approximately 75,000 year-round county residents here in Sullivan County. So doing the quick math, it looks like the normal everyday person like you or I will generate about a ton of solid waste per person per year for disposal in Sullivan County. And if we get really good at recycling everything in that ton that we possibly can, you know, that number is certainly going to drop. We're going to be able perhaps to recycle 30 to 50 percent of what we would normally throw away if we weren't recycling and then suddenly started, um, you know, fully invested, do a great job, really read the rules and regs and, you know, pull in everything we can into the recycling program when you pull into the transfer station. Part of that also involves consumer awareness and waste reduction. People need to be good consumers. Uh, Think about when you're shopping, is that thing I'm buying going to be in a recyclable, i.e. in Sullivan County, recyclable package so that when I use the thing I'm buying, the package is then fully recyclable so I don't have to pay to throw it away as garbage. I can put it in the recycling bin instead and avoid the cost. Or is it, something that is going to be a big, heavy item that I'm going to use and then use up and then have to throw away and put it in the garbage and send it upstate to be buried in a landfill. That's where individual folks like you and I really play a big role. And I I normally talk to several different groups here in the county each year. And and one of the key takeaways is if if you're making waste, you're really you're adding cost to your budget, right? You have to manage that waste. It's going to be expensive. If you're a business and you're creating waste, you're denying yourself profit as a company, or if you're a publicly owned company, you're, divide, you're essentially denying your shareholders the ability to see profit from their investment. So it really becomes important for people to understand what waste really is, and what it means and if you're denying yourself profit if you're denying yourself savings if you're increasing your costs to manage something that you don't need to be paying for uh it makes no sense right so it does come down to the consumer to make really good informed decisions about how to manage what they buy and what they throw away
0: well i i i Definitely, I, I agree, and it seems like an, an optimistic viewpoint that we're going to get everyone on board with this, and everyone is going to read the rules and regs and start uh, recycling better and whatnot. I'm not, it, it doesn't sound, seem convincing to me that that is necessarily going to happen, at least to the fullest extent that it could happen. Um I, I have a feeling that even people that are conscious of these things will from time to time accidentally recycle things that they shouldn't or throw away things that they could recycle and whatnot. So w- with that in mind, waste, the, the, our output of, output of garbage, even if we manage to bring it down from 2,000 pounds worth of garbage per person in Sullivan County every year, say we get it down to 1500 pounds of garbage per person in Sullivan County per year. Is there some kind of end game to just trucking it up to the landfill outside of Syracuse? I suspect at some point that landfill is gonna fill up um, and then we're going to be looking for a different one, perhaps driving our garbage even farther to dispose of. So I'd I'd love to know about the composting end of things. and, And also, how much of that waste that we're each producing every year could be composted and how significant that could be or something else, some other solutions that might be on the table for things besides compost as well.
1: Sure. Uh, uh, Leif, you read my mind. Uh, (laughs) Compostable materials, the organics component of our waste stream is another piece of that, that pie, right? We talked about the ton per person per year. And if you think 30 to 50% could be recycled, reduced, Another plus or minus 30% of what's left is the organic component of what folks throw out. And that's the part of garbage that normally could smell if it's not managed properly. Hmm. And that organic component represents uh, an opportunity. We could theoretically set up a means to recover organics from the waste stream, i.e. put out bins for people to put their organics in, much like they do recyclables now, and move that material to a compost facility that compost facility would then reduce in volume by about 90% the organics generated and produce a valuable soil amendment, meaning finished compost that could be distributed back to the community. So that is that 30% of the overall waste stream is a big number. I mean, at the very highest end, if you were to just do the, you know, the, the root math, you're looking at thousands of tons to get started. You have to start somewhere, and at first it's going to be a small number, but it should grow over time. And we're seeing neighboring counties successfully do this. Ulster County's had a program in place for organics management since about 2012, and they're now doing a couple thousand tons or more per year of organics that they would normally be placing in a garbage truck and driving up to Seneca Meadows Landfill, just like Sullivan County does. Most places all go to the same location, Mm. and uh, they're seeing a return on their investment. They are seeing a reduction in the amount of waste that they have to pay to throw out, and they're seeing that marketable recovery of organic materials back right at home. They've effectively, and we would effectively create our own market. We would be the market maker for that 30 percent of our waste streams that's organic material rather than depending on a single stream processor or a bottle company or a plastics manufacturer at a very remote location truck our stuff long distances and then have it come back to us as a consumer good we would effectively be the recycler of those organics uh, there's really no limit to the amount of material that could be used from organic uh, recovery we have farms here in Sullivan County that could benefit from it. We have gardeners. If you've ever been to a home improvement store and looked at the price of a bag of compost, the quality of that compost may sometimes be a little bit questionable, but the price is not. It's always pretty high. So we think that there's a very good means for people to be able to recover organics locally and see that return on investment over time.
0: I know that Patricio Rubio spoke to you about Composting program uh, on WJFF previously, but for those who may have missed that conversation, just really quickly, where are we at on the development of a scalable composting program at at the county level here?
1: Great question. Uh, The county has invested in an organics plan development and study. Uh, So for the past two years, we've been working with a consulting firm specifically to come up with the best way. To manage our county organics, uh, mm-hmm. taking a look at all of the available options. Uh, we think that probably aerobic, uh, which would be something like a, a raised bed compost type program, is the least expensive and the fastest way of easily uh, taking those feedstock organics from the waste stream and then turning them into a finished compost product. And that decision really comes down to looking at the plan, which also compared things like anaerobic digestion and more expensive means of transferring organics out of the county for management. So the initial steps will be something like over the next couple of years, maybe the development of a a pilot residential drop-off program. So you may start to see on our social media page, Sullivan Recycles, you may see some information about green bins being set up at transfer stations. And for more information, please click here. That will get you information about how to participate in those programs in the future. We want to make sure folks have the tools up front to know what should be in that compost bin, how we're going to collect it, where we're going to collect it, what we're going to do with it when we get it. And eventually, when we get some metrics behind us with that residential pilot program, we think that's the time to start thinking about developing that permanent commercial composting facility. And the site really for that has not been finalized. But we are looking at a couple of, of locations, including one of our holdings here at the former Monticello uh, landfill site. So there are some possibilities. There's some engineering that has to go into all of that. We need to take a careful look uh, with our partners in, in the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation with things like any odors, uh, truck traffic increases, uh, any groundwater impacts potentially that we would need to mitigate before we would think about building a facility like that. So there there are certainly some things we have to do yet. Yeah, there's a little work ahead, but there are some very positive objectives uh, that have been identified in the initial plan at this point. And that plan should be finalized in the next few weeks. That will give the legislature a document to look at, something to review, to ask questions about, to really tear apart. And ultimately, it's our county legislature that will set that policy uh, for us in the future. And that's what we're working for. We'd like to get that into their hands and give them the chance to, to initiate those new policies.
0: And is this program going to require a sizable investment at the county level to get going?
1: You know, initially, almost any undertaking in government does require an initial uh, cost, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we think You know, uh, an initial compost program with a a residential pilot program could start at very low cost, you know, probably in the $25,000 range, plus or minus, depending on how it's set up. Development of a permanent facility obviously does require some engineering work and a a much bigger commitment to a piece of real estate and support network to make that all happen. It's going to require new personnel that have specific training in organics management Uh, Perhaps some new tractor trailers or other equipment to move that material back and forth. But ultimately, the return on investment will take place over many years. And when you start to see an increase in your recycling or your composting tonnage, I should say, you'll start to see hopefully a corresponding decrease in the amount of waste that you have to ship out. And that may be optimistic, but when you think about all the potential organics generators and you think that organics are the heaviest component of the waste stream generally because it's all water weight, uh, you know, anything from the casino to hospitals, schools, institutions, the county jail, all of those facilities generate heavy organics. And if we can collect those organics and get them managed in a compost facility locally, we should start to see a reduction in the ultimate solid waste export costs, which is really the end goal.
0: Well, Bill Cutler, thank you so much for chatting about all of this stuff. Last question. If folks are interested in getting involved with these new initiatives or learning more about recycling and how they can be part of the solution here, where can they go to find out
1: more? My gosh, that's easy. The uh, first site would be Sullivan Recycles uh, on Facebook. You can certainly direct message us through that site, as well as sending us an email right here at the office. And our email address is simply forward recycling at sullivanny.us. Or folks are, are more than welcome to call me directly as well. My phone number here is 845-807-0291.
0: Well, I am excited to see continued progress on that countywide composting project. If we could reduce our waste by 30%, Just through that potential composting facility, while also generating revenue for the county and possibly lowering our taxes as a result, that sounds like a win for everyone. But at the end of the day, we'd still be putting 70% of our garbage into a pile. That Seneca Meadows landfill up near Syracuse that we're trucking all of our garbage to these days is filling up, and as of right now, it's slated to close permanently in 2025 then we're going to have to look even further afield to get rid of our trash. I think it's also worth mentioning that that national sword policy in China that bans the imports of our rather suspect quality recycling probably won't be the only international policy of its type that we're going to have to contend with in future years. As nations around the world become richer, as you can imagine, they also become less inclined to sacrifice health for income. So they're not going to be as willing to pollute their land with our trash as they once were. And that's great. I don't think any American wants their empty Starbucks cup ending up in someone's backyard in Southeast Asia. But it also means that we're going to have to rethink how we handle our waste because the status quo is changing whether we like it or not. Even though these policy changes might be happening 10,000 miles away, They're impacting us right here in the Catskills. And there is even more opportunity to innovate. Over the last few decades, there have been a number of successful waste-to-energy programs in the U.S., where garbage is incinerated at extremely high temperatures, and toxic gases are scrubbed out before water vapor, a bit of CO2, and a lot of electricity comes out the other end, leaving virtually no remaining garbage behind. This is actually something that the state of Hawaii has been doing for years, since it's particularly tricky to get rid of a high volume of waste from tourists on an island in the middle of the Pacific. We will follow up on that, as well as our proposed county composting facility, in future episodes. Until then, I'm Leif Johansson, this is Close to Home, and you're listening to WJFF Radio Catskill. And don't forget to support your local community radio station during the Spring Fun Drive. It's happening right now. Go to wjffradio.org to learn more and to donate. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.